0: Good morning. My name is Stephen Story, and I serve as the executive pastor here at Crawford Avenue. And uh, it's my joy uh, to share with us this morning from God's Word. The last number of weeks, Pastor Bert has been preaching to us in a series through the Psalms, and uh, we're taking a break from that series Uh, for a couple of weeks. uh, I'll be preaching today, and uh, Lord willing, uh, Jordan Trahan, will preach next Sunday. Uh, Today and next week, we plan to consider 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, so go ahead and turn there with me. Second uh, Peter chapter one, you'll find it on page 1018 in the black Bible provided for you there. In our Sunday morning Bible study cohorts, we are studying the book of First Peter, and I know uh, quite a few of us have been part of that study. If you haven't uh, been able to join us yet, we invite you to come. Sundays nine o'clock, and uh, we're looking at First Peter. Uh, but this morning we uh, plan to consider not First Peter but Second Peter. Chapter one and today we'll look at verses one through four. Uh, so if you would please follow along as I read for us, Second Peter chapter one, verses one through four. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we give You thanks this morning for Your Word to us through the Apostle Peter, and we ask for the help of Your Holy Spirit that uh, He would illuminate Your Word, uh, that we would rightly understand it and apply it to our hearts and lives for our good and for Your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Second Peter, of course, bears the name of its author, the Apostle Peter, and we know that this letter was written near to the end of Peter's life. In chapter 1, down in verses 13 through 15, uh, Peter uh, tells us he anticipates that he will die soon, and the very reason he wrote this letter was to give instruction that would remain with Christians after his own death. We don't know all the specifics of the original recipients of the letter, uh, but it does seem that it was written to uh, to Christians, perhaps a, a church or a group of churches who were dealing with false teachers. And these false teachers denied Christ by their ungodly living. So this is a letter that warns people who claim to be Christians yet who are living in a way that doesn't match the gospel of Jesus. Chapters two and three give us a, a portrait of these false teachers they were greedy, they were sexually immoral, they rejected spiritual authority. They, follow, uh, they promised freedom to their followers, while ironically, they themselves were enslaved to their own sinful passions, and they scoffed at the idea that there is a coming judgment. They cast doubt on the promise of Jesus that He would come again. And so Peter, in writing here, he's concerned uh, that true Christians not be tricked, they not be deceived, they not be lured into going after these false teachers. And so as an apostle of Jesus, he wants to answer these false teachers with the truth that he as an eyewitness received from Jesus himself. Peter knows that his own time is coming to an end. His time of being present to watch out for and to guard against danger in the churches. And so Peter writes to remind Christians of the true gospel message. He wants to stir them up by way of reminder. He wants to leave them a letter so that after his own departure from this life, they will be able to recall his apostolic teaching. Now, perhaps it already occurs to you that we ourselves are in a situation remarkably similar to Peter's original audience? Do we not live in a day when false teachers abound? Do we not live in a day in which many claim the name of Christ while also endorsing flagrant sexual sin? Are we not surrounded by those who scoff at the idea of a coming judgment and the idea that Jesus will return to the earth? Friends, we live in a world that is not unlike that of our Christian forebears in the first century. And so Peter's letter to them is remarkably relevant for us. Second Peter reminds us that what we believe about the return of Jesus, what we believe about the judgment to come in the future, directly affects the way that we live today. If we don't really believe that Jesus will return to judge the earth, then we have little motivation to live holy lives. But if we take the promises of Jesus for what they are, if we believe His promise that He is coming again, we have every reason to pursue spiritual growth and to live holy lives as we joyfully anticipate His return. These opening verses to the letter are a a springboard from which Peter will unpack these ideas in subsequent chapters. And in our passage today, Peter shows us that our salvation is from God, is fueled by the promises of God in order to make us like God. And that'll be our our three-part outline this morning. Our salvation is from God. We'll see this in verses 1 and 2. Our salvation is fueled by the promises of God, verses 3 and 4, and our salvation will make us like God, also in verse 4. So, first of all, our salvation is from God, verses 1 and 2. Here we see that our salvation is equal to that of the apostles because it comes from Christ Himself. Look there at verse 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Now, I think we all know it's tempting to kind of speed read through the greetings of the New Testament epistles, but even in these opening words, there are rich truths to be gleaned. Note, first of all, how Peter identifies himself. Simeon Peter, some, some Bibles might say Simon Peter. Simeon is the, uh, the Hebraic form of his name. He is a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Of course, the apostles were those unique individuals who uh, witnessed the resurrected Christ for themselves and were especially commissioned by Jesus to proclaim his gospel message. Peter is one of the apostles But the first word he uses to describe himself is servant. His own status is subordinate to one who is greater. Christ must increase in the minds of Peter's readers. Peter must decrease. He is merely a servant. Peter is under the authority of his master, the Lord Jesus. You know, there are any number of ways we re- refer to ourselves and describe ourselves as Christians, we might just simply say, I am a Christian. We might say, I am a follower of Jesus. Do you ever think of yourself as Peter does? I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Yes, truly, Peter is a servant, and he is a servant with a special designation that of apostles. And so, in that, he speaks with authority. He has no authority unless it has been given to him by Christ. Peter has a delegated authority. He's been given an assignment. He's been given a task by his master. He has been sent to teach and to bear witness to what he has heard and seen from Jesus. And then comes this stunning assertion that the faith of the ordinary Christians receiving this letter is equal in standing to the faith of the apostles themselves there in verse 1 to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours if we look carefully at this first verse we realize that even in the way peter introduces himself and greets his audience he's going out of his way to take the focus off of himself and to put it on christ He says that he is a servant, and despite his truly special status as an apostle, fundamentally, his own faith is in no way superior to the faith of normal, ordinary Christians. He states plainly, their faith is of an equal standing with ours, presumably himself and the other apostles. How is this the case? Well, it's because for any Christian Their faith originates not in themselves, but in Christ. So Peter says that his readers have obtained a faith. The word obtained there means to receive something, often by the casting of lots. It's the idea of being selected to receive a good and desirable thing in a way that you did not control. It's not communicating the idea that this is arbitrary, Rather, it's saying that you obtained it under the providential rule of God, outside of your own control. The same word is used of Zechariah over in Luke chapter 1, where the priest was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord. So, we who are not apostles have obtained, we have received something valuable in a manner that we ourselves did not control. We have obtained a faith of equal standing with Peter. This faith that we have obtained, Peter could be referring to our belief in the gospel generally. So we talk about the Christian faith, the body of doctrine that we believe. And it seems Peter is also referring to the personal faith that each individual Christian has in the Lord Jesus. So we say, I heard the gospel and I place my faith in Jesus. The faith that we have obtained In a manner that we did not control, that faith is of equal standing with Peter's faith. So, maybe surprisingly, it's not like the apostles had first class faith and the rest of us have second class faith. That is not what's going on. Peter is saying that ordinary Christians, our faith in Jesus is of the same variety as the faith of the apostles, our faith is cut from the same cloth as Peter's faith. And this is the reality because for all of us, our faith originates not in ourselves, but it originates in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from us. If it did, there could be a real difference between my faith that came from me and your faith that came from you. But because our faith originates in Christ, my faith is of the same standing as your faith, which is of the same standing as Peter's faith. And we we have to note here, Peter doesn't waste any time in this letter. He's talking about the gospel right here in chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible shows us that all of us are separated from God because of our sinful rebellion against Him. Things are not right between us and God, and nothing we can do will make it right. But Jesus, by His own perfect righteousness, purchased salvation for all who repent and believe in Him, and His righteousness is freely given to all God's elect that we might place our faith in Him. By His righteousness, we have obtained such saving faith. Faith is necessary for salvation, and saving faith is not something we fabricate on our own. It is a gift from God. This means that for a spiritual giant like Peter, there is no boasting about the greatness of his faith. His faith came by the righteousness of Jesus. This means that for a new Christian struggling to understand the Bible for the first time, there is no fear that your faith may be insufficient. Your young faith, as new as it may be, your faith came by the righteousness of Jesus. And think about that. If you, if you sometimes struggle with being assured of your salvation, If you have placed your faith in Christ, you need not fear that your faith is insufficient. Because the only reason you trusted in Christ is that you received the gift of faith from Him. If your faith is insufficient for salvation, that means the gift of faith that God gave you is insufficient. And that cannot be the case. For the wealthy Christian, for the poor Christian, for the highly educated for the one who hasn't learned to read very well, for the Jew, for the Gentile, for the young, for the old. Students, do you ever find that you are timid in your faith because you're surrounded by others who are older and more mature than you? What did Paul write to the young pastor in First Timothy chapter 4, verse 12? He says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct in love in faith and in purity. If you're a younger Christian, you can humbly model godly faith, even for older Christians, because your faith comes from the same source that theirs does. It springs from the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This faith of equal standing sets the context for later in the book. Peter will be emphasizing the importance of personal holiness He will stress how critical it is that those who are in Christ hold confidently to the promises of God and how urgent it is that they reject worldliness. you can maybe imagine the objection that might come. Well, it's easy for him to talk about holy living. He's an apostle. And so Peter cuts the feet out from under any objections like that by elevating the person of Jesus. My faith comes from him. Your faith comes from him. We have one Savior, and so we all must pursue faithfulness and righteousness, that He is the source of everything we need to do that faithfully. The fact that our faith is of equal standing with Peter's does not mean there's no room for spiritual growth. Look at how Peter greets them in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May it increase. May you experience increased grace in your life and increased peace in your life. How do we get more grace? How do we get more peace? He tells us, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. See, our faith is of equal standing, all of us. We have obtained the gift of saving faith by the righteousness of God, and in that sense, all Christians are on equal footing. But in another sense, there can be growth. There can be increase in grace in peace as we grow in the knowledge of God. Christian, I hope you've realized that trusting in Christ for your salvation is just the beginning. It's not like you're going through life at kind of a baseline level, and then there's a, there's a blip, you're saved, and you come up here to like the next level, and then you just kind of continue along uh, at, uh, at a plateaued level. No, trusting in Christ for your salvation is just the beginning, so don't be content to remain a spiritual infant. Seek to grow in grace as you put forth effort to know God more fully. Seek to grow in peace with God and peace with others as you work hard to know Christ more intimately. This is something we can work towards as brothers and sisters in the same church family as we disciple one another. This is something we can pray for one another. Do you pray for your fellow church members? Take advantage of the the membership directory you got at the members meeting last week and um, work through that directory, praying for your fellow church members. And this is one way you can pray even for a church member you don't know very well. Pray that they would have grace and peace multiplied to them in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The person and the work of Jesus are front and center in chapter 1. In the first 11 verses, of this chapter, Jesus is mentioned by name five times. The name of Jesus occurs twice in verse 1 and again in verse 2. And we have to note there's some rich Trinitarian insight here in how Peter talks about God. In verses 1 and 2, Peter teaches us both that Jesus, the Son, is God, and he teaches us that Jesus, the Son, is distinct from God the Father. So take a a moment to notice this. Verse 1, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this phrase, there is one person, Jesus, and Jesus is both our God and our Savior. So here, Peter sees no distinction between Jesus and God. Jesus is God. This is one of the clearest affirmations in the New Testament of the deity, of Jesus. And then look at verse 2, where Peter writes about the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In this verse, there are two people. There is one knowledge, but it refers to two people, God and Jesus. So in verse 2, Peter does see a clear distinction between Jesus the Son and God the Father. They are two different persons. Of course, as Christians, we believe that there is one God eternally existing in three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. There is unity. There is one God and there is distinction. There's three persons. And we can see that truth taught here regarding the Father and the Son. Verse 1, Jesus is God, unity. Verse 2, Jesus and God are two different persons, distinction. So all that's under our, our first point this morning. For all Christians, Our salvation is of equal standing even with that of an apostle like Peter because of its source, because our faith comes from the righteousness of Jesus, who is God. Second uh, point this morning, our salvation is fueled by the promises of God. You see this in verses 3 and 4. Our salvation is fueled by the promises of God, and here we see that God, by His own power, has given us everything we need to live godly lives Now. Let's look at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> uh, let me, I'm going to read that again uh, a little more slowly and just, just kind of chew on each, each phrase as I, as I read these verses again. So verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God, by His own power, has given us everything we need to live godly lives now. Our salvation is fueled by the promises of God. And this also will be important later in the book, because remember, Peter's going to call out the fake Christians who claim Jesus but who live in immorality. So Peter's going to raise the bar with an expectation that Christians ought to live holy lives but before he does that, he wants to assure us that holy living is not an impossible task. Rather, it's something we have already been equipped to do. So let's consider, what does it mean that he has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness? Well, that idea of life and godliness that's a, a way of talking about our salvation in a nutshell. We were dead. God has made us alive together with Christ, life. We were ungodly, sons of disobedience, children of wrath. God has made us to be His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, godliness. And God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And in verse 4, Peter points us to God's precious and very great promises. I think it's the case that you can draw a straight line from the all things in verse 3 to the precious and very great promises in verse 4. So understanding how all the elements of these two verses fit together is a bit of a challenge, but I think the all things of verse 3 and the promises of verse 4 are more or less referring to the same idea. So think about this. God has granted to us all things. All things, period? No. All things that pertain to life and godliness. And there's a a right now sense to the idea of life and godliness. This is our day-to-day. This is where we are, living life, trying to be godly. And God has given us everything we need for it. In what manner do these all things that we need, in what manner do they come to us? What sort of box are they packaged in? Well, the the all things come to us in the form of His precious and very great promises. So there's a a right now sense to life and godliness, but there's a future aspect to promises. They are forward-looking. A promise is something that comes to me right now that has a fulfillment in the future. So, I promise you, I will give you $20 tomorrow. There's something that I'm committing to, but it won't be fulfilled until a point in the future. And notice in the text here, what is it that sits between all things that pertain to life and godliness and His precious and very great promises? So, we've got these two statements. What sits between them? It's the knowledge of Him who called us. That's what connects those two ideas. So there's some sense in which in receiving and believing and taking hold of the promises of God, it's in doing that that we increase in the knowledge of God. As we take for ourselves the promises of God, as we grow in the knowledge of Him who called us, it's in those things that we are equipped with all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now, I realize to a, to a point, this is way up here. This is hard to get your head around. It was for me this week studying. But I think these are realities that we can apply in very simple and very practical ways. So one simple application here, we should learn... And we should regularly remind ourselves of God's promises in the Bible. That's a simple way to apply some grand truth here. Learn and remind yourself of God's promises in the Bible. Within the pages of the Bible, God makes scores of promises to his people. We need, we need first of all, to read them and know what they are. So we need to read our Bibles And second of all, we need to become so familiar with them that we can call them to mind at just the right moment. For example, some of us younger folks maybe are finding that we don't fit in at school because we serve Jesus and we choose not to take part in the bullying and the gossip and the dirty jokes. That can be a difficult thing. There's a promise for that. God promises Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Matthew 5.10. And so there you have a precious and very great promise that is the fuel for life and godliness in a very real and very difficult situation. Some of us are doing our very best to disciple another Christian and help them in their walk seems to not be making any difference in their lives, and we wonder if it's worth it. God says to not grow weary in doing good, and He promises in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Galatians 6, 9. Some of us are feeling overwhelmed with grief at the death of a loved one. God promises he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more for the former things will pass away. Revelation 21:4. Some of us are growing tired of fighting against sexual temptation. Everything around us tells us that our happiness comes from indulging our sexual cravings. And God promises, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Matthew 5, 8. Some of us have been abandoned by a friend or a parent or a spouse, and God promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. Some of us are entering into a season of great suffering and great uncertainty. God promises, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. As we take for ourselves the promises of God, as we grow in the knowledge of him who called us, it's in those things that we are equipped with all things that pertain to life and godliness. God calls us a holy living, and He gives us everything we need to do it faithfully. There are, of course, many, many promises God has made to His people, and in this letter, Peter especially has in mind the promise of Jesus' return. Jesus told His disciples in John fourteen two, "'In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again.'" and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Certainly, Peter remembered the message of the angels in Acts chapter 1, verse 11. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. These things are clearly on Peter's mind toward the end of his letter. It's 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He writes, scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of His coming? In other words, y'all think Jesus is coming back? That's crazy. If He is, where is He at? He's taken a long time. Peter says, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so we cling all the more tightly to His promised return. Chapter 3, verse 13, according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. For the Christian, perhaps no other promise is so important for life and godliness is the promise that Jesus will return. His promised return motivates us to live holy lives, knowing that we will answer to Him for the way we live. His promised return puts into context the difficulties of life, all of which will surely fade into the background on the day when He does return. Jesus' promised return gives us great joy at the thought that one day all will be put right in the world wickedness will be judged sin and death will be done away with god by his own power through his precious and very great promises has given us everything we need to live godly lives today then our third and final point our salvation will make us like God. This is in verse 4. The goal of our salvation is that we escape from sinful worldliness and become like God. If that statement shocks you a little bit, I think that's kind of the point. (laughs) This is a stunning truth, but let's look at it from the text. Uh, Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them Uh, here it is, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Does that phrase make you squirm a little bit? Partake of the divine nature? What in the world? Is Peter saying we can become divine beings? No, we're not Mormon. We do not believe that humans can become gods. And that's not what Peter is teaching. Peter tells us what he means in the the very next phrase partaking of the divine nature is having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So, the first man, Adam, was made in the image of God. Before he fell into sin, Adam was a flawless reflection of what God is like. Adam was not God. But if you looked at Adam, you saw an accurate representation of what God is like. You could learn about God by looking at Adam. But what happened? Because of his sinful desire, that image was corrupted. And now all humanity is corrupted in this way. We are still made in the image of God, but that image has been distorted. It's like one of those wavy mirrors you might see at an amusement park. It still reflects something of what you look like, but in a twisted way. Someone who looks at that mirror gets only the roughest idea of what you actually look like. But when when God saves us, He begins in real time the process of making us more and more like Christ. He slowly, bit by bit, corrects the distortions that are present in that mirror So that over time, we begin to more and more accurately reflect what God really looks like. We escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. And in this, we are partaking of the divine nature. This still just seems nuts. How can this be? We can partake of God's nature? What does that mean? How is that even possible? Scripture tells us we can partake of God because we have been united with God. John 14, verse 19, Jesus says, Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Or a few chapters later, Jesus speaking to the Father, John 17, 22, so the Son, speaking to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. Or First John chapter 3 verse 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And we can't be like God if we are still entangled with the corruption that is in the world. The word corruption there is the idea of decay, something that's ruined, something that is doomed to be destroyed because it is spoiled. So one day earlier this week, I told my wife, Dottie, that I would take care of preparing dinner that night. And I wasn't sure what we were going to have for dinner, so I dug around in the freezer and I got really excited. And at the bottom of the freezer, I found an uncooked steak. And I thought, oh, this is great. So I set it out to thaw and uh, was looking forward to steak dinner that night. Let's just say that in our household, there are competing theories about how long food can remain in the freezer and still be edible. I tend to be of the mind that it can stay in there for years, and that's what the freezer's for, right? It'll preserve it forever, indefinitely. But as that steak thawed, and it revealed itself to be all kinds of gnarly colors that steak is not supposed to be, I began to wonder if perhaps corruption had started to take hold. So the steak went in the trash, and we had hot dogs for dinner. This word, corruption, pops up several places in the New Testament. It gives us a sense of what Peter has in mind here. Romans 8.21, the physical creation itself is in bondage to corruption. 1 Corinthians 15.42, we die and our bodies are buried in the ground because they are corruptible, whereas our resurrection bodies will be incorruptible. Galatians 6.8, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We inherit the sin of Adam. We are locked into corruption from the moment we are conceived, and it's only through the precious and very great promises of God that we can escape from corruption. Corruption. We are now freed. We are enabled to partake of the divine nature. Listen to Charles Spurgeon commenting on this verse. He says, We are by grace made like God. God is love. We become love. He that loveth is born of God. God is truth. We become true. And we love that which is true. And we hate the darkness and the lie. God is good. It is his very name. He makes us good by His grace so that we become the pure in heart who shall see God. Rejoice in this, brethren. You are made partakers of the divine nature, and all these promises are given to you in order that you may show this forth among the sons of men that you are like God and not like ordinary men, that you are made different now from what flesh and blood would make you, having been made participators in the nature of God. John Calvin said very simply, it is the purpose of the gospel to make us sooner or later like God. If you ever feel that being a Christian makes you the odd one out, like you just don't fit in, be encouraged. That's the way it's supposed to work. The more closely we come to resemble Christ, the more we partake of the divine nature the more fully we are delivered from the corruption that is in the world. The goal of our salvation is that we escape from sinful worldliness and become like God. It's with these things in mind that in just a moment we are going to take the Lord's Supper together, and as we take the bread and the cup, perhaps think today about the fact that the Lord Jesus gave us this ordinance to help us understand how closely united we are with him. The bread and the juice represent the body and the blood of Jesus, and we are so closely united with him that we consume these elements into our very bodies. This is a simple picture of a magnificent truth that God has saved us so that we might be united with him, that we might become partakers of the divine nature. What an amazing thing the Lord has done in saving us. Would you join me in prayer together? Father, we are amazed and humbled as we uh, consider today what you have done uh, to save us, to make us your people. We realize you didn't have to save us. And we realize that in saving us, you didn't have to do it in such a splendid and magnificent way. But our salvation it comes from you. It originates with you. You give us everything, even the faith to trust in you, as a gift from your hand. We thank you for that. You equip us. You give us your spirit. You give us your word. The promises that you've made to us, the precious and very great promises of your word that fuel us each day, that we might live like you. And Lord, it's hard to believe, but the goal of all this is that in the future, we might, every one of us, be made like you. We can't imagine your love for us. We thank you for it. We praise you for your kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.